Okay, so I'm going to start off with a series of questions that I'd like for all of you to answer in your heads. Don't answer it out loud. Uh, just think of it in your head. And this is going to be a very easy quiz, especially for you students who are always studying for things that have difficult ones, because there's only two answers. It's either me, not like me, but like you, me, like you. So in your head you say me. It's like a rush hour moment. You, me, no, you, me, yeah, you. Uh, like I would say me, you would say me, or someone else. Two answers. I'm going to ask a question and your answer is, oh, that's me, or no, that's somebody else. And by the somebody else, I don't mean like anyone on the planet. I mean somebody you know. Friend, coworker, acquaintance, relative, just somebody you know. Okay? Question number one. Who gets invited to more hangouts or social events? You or someone else? Who has more friends? You or someone else? Who has more meaningful relationships? You or someone else? Easy quiz, right? Last one. Who has more fun? You or someone else? It's likely that you chose someone else for all of the answers. Maybe there's somebody here that's super popular, like, yeah, me. Uh, definitely me. Oh. Uh, I'd imagine most of, I mean, statistically, someone has to say me, right? But most of us probably said someone else to all or most of the questions. And I didn't come up with these. I'm not doing this randomly. They actually come out of a very famous study that was conducted at Yale. And what the researchers learned from it was that most people, most, I, I mean, I should have looked it up so I don't speak out of place, but I feel like it was 90-something percent believe themselves to be below average when it comes to their social lives. So we believe that there's some inner circle group that is having all the fun and we're the loser that's missing out. Therefore, the conclusion that you come up with is I have no friends, I'm at the bottom of the social totem pole, everyone has a great life and mine sucks, you know, like I'm the one that's missing out. And there's a problem with this thinking that the study revealed and the big finding that made this study like really helpful and useful for the researchers was showing why people feel that way. How come 90-something percent of people feel like they're, like it, statistically it doesn't make sense. There's something wrong here. It's got to be why the, the, the participants in the study are answering this way. And they found that the reason why everyone answers someone else is because you always compare up. Or in their language they notice that they compare, this is a verb from the study, to the extreme reference point. So in this case, when you hear who has more friends, it's in our nature to instantly think of the most popular person that you know. The person who's super active socially, always posting on Instagram, clearly like, oh, this night they were at a concert, the next night they were at a party, the next night they were at this. Have so much going on in their lives that, of course, your answer is someone else, not me. We, they learn that we always compare ourselves up and to the extreme. So... If that's true, let's try this one more time. Here are two more questions. You or someone else? Who's more financially stable? You or someone else? Who's more blessed financially? You or someone else? Most of us will answer someone else for the same reason when it comes to money because you're comparing up. You're thinking of the people that you're convinced have so much better life than you because they have a way bigger salary, their car is nicer, and we just fill in this story that it's someone else. It's definitely not me that has been blessed in that way. And, and, and just like it makes us think 
or that attitude or that mindset makes us think that everyone has all the friends and I do not. It does that with money too. But the reason why it's worse, in, in my opinion, I think it's worse to have that mindset when it comes with our finances, is because it leads us to ignore huge chunks of the Bible, huge, huge, huge chunks of Scripture, because it makes us feel like I'm off the hook. Scripture, Old Testament, New, big, big chunks of it, large percentage, challenges the followers of Jesus in how they view and use money. But if you're the poor person and everyone else is rich, it's not really, it doesn't really apply to me that much. It applies to them. The people who are always on vacation, who have all the expendable cash, they need to obey all the commandments about how to be a good financial steward. I'm the one that needs the help. See, the Bible talks so much about money. And I'm not sure all of us take it seriously because we don't see ourselves as the one with the problem or the one that Jesus is talking to. And the reason why is it's so important, so important for us to pause and reflect on and study is because Scripture is crystal clear that God cares so much about what we do with it. God cares a ton about how we steward the finances that are given to us. So for the next three weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about money. And not just money because we're not financial advisors. I'm not going to tell you how to budget or which credit card to sign up for. We're going to be talking about economic discipleship. How our handling money is shaped by our following Jesus. How I save money is shaped by following Jesus. How I view money, use money, spend money, whatever money. How that is transformed because I have a relationship with Jesus. Because... It's a serious matter of our discipleship. I know most people hate talking about money. Um, It's not exactly something that people enjoy. Some people feel like it's too personal. Like, you know, one of the most, like, taboo questions you could ever ask somebody in our culture is how much they make, Um, which is, to me, kind of strange. Like, I get it. But, like, at least at church, we talk openly about, like, our sex lives, about, like, really personal things. But it's like, oh, how dare you ask me about my money? It's definitely a cultural thing that scripture pushes back on. Because to ignore that would be for the church to ignore something that God cares about. And certainly God actually is invested in in your growth and your maturation as a believer. To me, it's like if we were to ignore talking about it, if you and I were to ignore that part of our spiritual lives, it's like, oh, I want to be a chef or open up a restaurant, but I don't know how to season my food. Or I want to be a basketball player, but, you know, I don't need to practice dribbling. Or I want to work in healthcare, but you know what? I'm just going to skip anatomy and skip biology. I'll be fine as a doctor. It doesn't make sense. Looking at our finances through God's lens is core to our discipleship. And if we care about what God cares about, we'll care about this area in our lives. And so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at God's word for the next three weeks in this very specific area. By the way, we have so many texts to choose from, but we're going to focus on one. It's a parable that Jesus teaches about Uh, Two characters about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And this will be for our next three weeks. So let me read this for us now as we dive into this area of our discipleship that the Lord really cares about. Luke 16. So there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So this is a very famous parable of Jesus and is one of the many examples that show us that money is a critical, critical matter of discipleship. If we follow Jesus, we care about it. So here we have a rich man who's unnamed. We don't know. It's just, I mean, this is a fictional story that Jesus is, is teaching a parable. And a poor man named Lazarus. Both of them die. Lazarus goes to heaven. Rich man goes to hell. And the passage has so much in it. And thankfully, I'm not going to cover it all because we have the next two weeks to do so. Uh, but in a nutshell, if I can put it in one, this passage challenges us with the reality that how we steward our finances, especially when it relates to the suffering world, has eternal consequences. So again, in summary, how we steward our finances, not just in general, oh, I budget well for my internet and my car. No, 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 particular to the suffering world has eternal consequences. So here it is again. Money is a critical, serious matter of discipleship. The Bible is repetitive, it is clear, it is blunt, It is serious about how followers of Jesus handle the money that's been given to them. And so it's hard for me to imagine that we're growing and we're going maturing in our faith if we have no concern, no care, and that if if God is not actually the God of our bank accounts too. But for starters, for this series today, what I want to focus on is who we relate to the most. See, as I mentioned, Lazarus is named. He has a name. Lazarus is a poor man. But the rich man doesn't have a name. Both are fictional characters in this parable. So I wonder why Jesus would name one and not the other. I feel that Jesus probably did that so that the audience, those who are listening, the people who are in front of him, and now us as the reader, recognize that, oh, I'm supposed to relate to that person, the nameless one. It's funny when you think about it because when you think about Jesus' original audience, he wasn't at like this seminar to like the world's top billionaires. He wasn't at like this like gathering of CEOs of tech companies and hospitals saying, hey, you all need to really know how to change the world with your money. Actually, chapter 16 starts with these four words. Jesus told his disciples. So his audience is his disciples. And what we know about his disciples was they were poor They were fishermen, which was the bottom of the totem pole, and then they left their careers to follow him around. 
They had no possessions. They had the clothes on their backs, the sandals on their feet, and they survived off of the generosity of others. They were literally the bottom of society, and yet he's addressing them. So the interesting thing is, why would he, why would he be talking to his disciples, the people who had no money, about this? And it challenges me. It challenges us to think, oh, like, Jesus isn't addressing me. He's talking about the someone else. But maybe he does want us to relate to the rich man in the story, not Lazarus. I think the Yale study really comes into play here because we often think that being discipled by Jesus' ethic of finances, it applies to specific people, the rich ones. And because we compare up, eh, some of it like applies to my life, but not really a ton of it. But what if we truly are the rich man? So when you read this parable, and there's two characters, rich man unnamed and Lazarus, who do you relate to? Who are you in the story? Have you ever said, oh, it's me. I'm the rich man. I never did until I got older. So let me tell you my story. When I was growing up, I always had in my mind that money was two things. Something we were always running out of and something I had to be scared of. That was what I computed as an elementary school kid. And I don't know all the reasons. I'm just complicated. I'm young. I, don't, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm just reflecting back as an adult. But two reasons that I do know why I computed that money is something we're running out of and that we need to be scared of was, firstly, my parents were working all the time. They owned their own business. It was never really doing that great. And they would work Monday through Saturday, 7 to 7. That's a 72-hour work week with very little cash to you know, get out of that much work. We were never able to hire people, so they never had an employee. It was just the two of them running their own business by themselves. There was no such thing as PTO and vacation time, nothing like that. The only time they took off were the major holidays. We took Christmas off, Thanksgiving off, you know. So vacation was not even a concept in my mind. They didn't even take off when they were really sick. The second reason is because they would often talk about how we can't do everything that other families were doing. So, you know, in elementary school, I grew up in, you know, a suburb of Massachusetts, like 94% white um, town. So I was like the minority who had not like very white skin. And, you know, you go on like February break and come back and all the white girls are like super tan. And they all have like beads in their hair. And like, oh, okay, how was your time in Cancun? You know, like one of those things. And I didn't have that concept. Who, wait, you went on a plane during February break? I was in my basement like vacuuming, you know, like, like. The concept didn't make sense to me that people would have money to go on planes and to go drink like, like a, put a straw inside of a coconut, you know? Like, that, that didn't make any sense. So we, we also, ne I mean, beyond that was we, di we didn't go out to eat. Like, my friends would talk about, oh, like, we went to this restaurant. I was like, what's a restaurant? You know, like, it just wasn't something in my mind. My parents, there was a Vietnamese restaurant down the street with, like, $8, $7 vermicelli that my dad and my, my dad would, like, treat my mom, like, maybe twice a year. And we weren't allowed to go because, oh, we're not paying for four people's bowls. Like, two people only. So I would just eat spam, you know, at home. My dad never, we never bought new and like nice cars. My dad would buy cars off of Craigslist. I don't know how he taught himself how to use Craigslist, but he would do that and he would fix them up. He had all these manuals that he would get at the library of how to fix the particular model's car and he learned it by himself. And so all these experiences put into my mind that we were poor. So all of my life, all the data told me I'm Lazarus. I'm the less fortunate one. The rich people, the someone else need to take care of me. Therefore, it relieves any pressure of mine for all of this part in the Bible. So every time I inevitably got there, which you get there all the time, I would whoop, 
skip, skip. Oh, love your enemies? Eh, that applies to me. Oh, like you could only serve God or money. Not, oops, skip. It doesn't apply. It wasn't until adulthood and working through like growing up as an adult I realized something. See, I was building a case in my mind this whole time that I was poor and repeating the story and then searching for evidence to reaffirm what I've already concluded. It was, it was the, like this lens that I had created and that got ingrained in me stronger and stronger. I realized I was a really good lawyer as a young kid. Think about like a trial. Let's say person A and person B, boom, they get into a car accident and they're fighting. No, it was your fault. And so you hire your lawyer, you hire your lawyer, and both parties are taking the same exact experience, but it's all about the lens, how you view what happened. And so both lawyers will do a good job if they convince everybody else that this lens is reality. This is what happened. So you convince the jury that your client is the innocent one and you win people over with individuals' purview. So in some ways it's a matter of perspective, not always a matter of what happened. You're talking about the same experience, but just taking perspective and turning it into fact. And I did that with money. Think about my money story that I just shared with you. Here's how I was a good lawyer, convincing myself that I was poor. What I said was, my parents owned their own business, they worked 72 hours a week, and they never hired anybody. What I didn't say was, my parents owned their own business, and they always paid the mortgage on time. It was a hard 72-hour week, but at least we always had made ends meet. Same story, different attorney. What I said was, we never got to go on family vacations. I had no concept of eating out. Who does that? Only celebrities do that. What I didn't say was we always had food on the table because they worked hard enough to provide for our needs. What I said was my dad would buy used cars and fix them up with books from the library. I said we never had like a nice like Benz or something flashy and new. What I didn't say was... My dad worked hard enough so we never had to take public transportation. My parents always had a safe and running vehicle. Same story, different lens. All of my life as a kid, I was building like this Harvard Law School case that I'm poor. I'm Lazarus. But maybe it's not so much the reality of the story, but how I'm viewing my story to prove what I already have concluded about my own life. And here's what I want to focus on today. Here's the important part for our discipleship. When we are telling ourselves that we're Lazarus and not the blind man, the, I think the worst part of what it does to our, our faith is it blinds us from being able to see how greatly God has provided. When you're convinced you're always lowly, you're not grateful for what you have. It prevents us from being able to experience thanksgiving and joy for all that is before you. In my experience, it's like, oh, all my friends' parents have Lexuses. We have a Honda. Instead of, wow, we've, like, this car is working. It's safe and it's good. It gets us from point A to point B. There's no room to be grateful. And that damages our spiritual lives for sure. It changes the way that we view God. It changes the way that we feel like he loves us. And so here's today's main point. God honoring financial stewardship starts with recognizing how much you've been given and responding with thankful, thanksgiving, gratefulness, joy. 
Maybe you're surprised because if we ever get into, you think, oh, we're going to show up at a money series at church. They're just going to guilt us into, oh, you don't give enough and wag your finger. I mean, maybe we'll get there. We have two more weeks. We are going to talk about, we're not going to guilt people. We are going to talk about generosity. We are going to talk about we need to give. We certainly need to give. But we need to start with something else. We are a blessed people. If you are like me and you repeat in your mind that you are not, let's challenge that. We need to respond in thankfulness. How many of you are like me and you've built up a case of why it doesn't apply to you? How many of you have exempted yourself from financial stewardship because you always compare up? It's the Jeff Bezos is of the world that need to be the ones concerned about this. How many of you uh, always compare to the extreme reference point? Maybe you don't relate at all. Your parents did really well. You grew up in a very wealthy town and, and, and you were just blessed to begin with. Regardless of your situation, we all need to pause and realize we have been given so much. That is a spiritual practice we all need to increase and increase and increase. To have eyes to see what God has given you that is so good and to be thankful. This is incredibly important to our discipleship. So the road to a healthy and worshipful financial stewardship, it doesn't start with you're like so selfish, you didn't give enough and, and guilting yourself and like, oh, like all those like boba runs at like midnight. I was, you know, I was so, I'm such a sinner, you know, or like, oh, my sneakers are $200. Like I should repent and throw them in a fire at a retreat. You know, like that doesn't start with that. There's <laughs> definitely people who've done that. It starts with recognition and gratefulness for what we have. So if you've not started this journey yet, or maybe you're already on it. You started this a long time ago, but you just need the reminder. Here's what I'd like to encourage all of us to do today and continue on. One, to recognize that we're the rich man in the story. Maybe this is hard for you. Um, I've sat across a table for coffee with a lot of people whose families had a much worse situation than mine. And maybe this is very difficult and it'll take extra time. Here's what I'm asking. I'm asking sensitively to just see if maybe you've only been looking through one lens. That's all I ask. Others of you, you grew up in a very wealthy situation, and there's nothing to be guilty about. It's great that your parents did well, that your family did well, that your grandfather's inheritance was well. That's good. We just all, regardless of our starting point, let's just recognize who we are. We're the fortunate ones. We're the blessed ones. And then in response to that, number two, let's thank God regularly thank God when you spend thank God or, or create practices and habits to express thanksgiving this passage you know many of you or some of you have taken the class that you know we've, we teach here which is based on this it's an economic stewardship class and one of the homeworks of the class is every time you swipe your credit card or pay cash or something to just to say a quick one second prayer in your mind and it's very transformative when you do that. Every time you pull out the credit card at the grocery store, at the movie theater, at, you know, at the mall, just to say, oh, thank you, God, that I even have the opportunity to be able to do this. Maybe when you're eating out with friends, if you pray before the meal, pray for that fact that what you're doing. Thank you, God, that we can eat out and enjoy it. And after this, we're going to go get ice cream. And appreciate that more. And give God the credit when you're able to buy new clothes or go on vacation or, or make your car payments on time. You don't even think about it. It's auto payment. What if we were to thank God regularly? And the flip side of that, and I need to keep myself from saying anything offensive because sometimes I get really annoyed. 
let's challenge our complaints. I'm getting annoyed. We, we're educated. We'll certainly be middle, upper, middle, and upper class folks, but we complain too much about our debt. Oh my God, my student loans. Yeah, but your $200,000 salary in three years from now is going to take care of that. Some loans crush families. Our loans inconvenience our family. There's a difference. Let's challenge our complaints. You know, when I look at the rich man, right, here's, here's the thing. He started his description. He doesn't have a name, right? But here's what's described of him. This is all we know. He was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. That sounds like me. I mean, I'm not wearing Gucci. This is like, what is this? This is Outlet J. Crew. Not bad, right? <laughs> Assembly Row. I live right there. It's nice. <laughs> Some of you may not think I'm dressed in fine linen. I think I am. And I do feast sumptuously every day. I can go out down the street and get anything I want. That's me. But if I'm always complaining, it robs me of that recognition of that. If I was only complaining about this and that, oh, it's so annoying. We need to speak truth into our complaints and challenge them. We need to recognize who we are and they've got, give God thanks regularly. So recognizing what you've been giving and res- given and responding in praise is step one on the road to God-honoring financial stewardship. And it's just a small, small taste of the big arc of the mission of our lives, which is to recognize all that Jesus has done for you, not just the finance part, all that he has done for you. We just sang in the song, and it's all because of you, Jesus. It's all because of you. That's the, the, the climax of, the, of that song that we just sang. That's the big mission of our lives, responding in praise for all that he's done. The finances is one little sliver of that. You see, our greatest blessing from God is not the, just the resources it provides or the money or the jobs or material goods, certainly not the material goods. It's sending his son to give his life as payment to purchase our eternal salvation. That's the big blessing. We are the rich man, capital R, capital M, of all that he has done. The blessings of money is just a small foretaste of the treasure awaiting us in heaven. Giving thanks for money on earth one day is going to end. You're never going to think about it again. And your 401k and your IRAs and your all this and that is, is going to wither and disappear. And maybe it already did this lately, right? Inflation. Whew. Uh, sorry, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, it, it's all going to end one day. But we're in the next life. We will forever give thanks for the eternal treasure that we're legit swimming in because of the cross, because of Jesus' victory. See, financial stability, having a good job, steady income, savings, all that, it's a small sign pointing to a big, big, big blessing in an awesome and good and gracious God. Let our financial stewardship just be one of the expressions of our, not Don't fill in the blank with responsible adulting, with our discipleship, with our faith, with our Christianity, because of what God has done for us in our lives in the biggest scale. So let's follow Jesus with everything. 
Let's not get turned off when we talk about money. We, let's desire to talk about it more. Let's, let's challenge how we view ourselves, how we spend, save, give, all of how we are generous. And we'll talk about that in coming weeks because of how much we have received. We have received everything from God. So church, Jesus has been rich and generous to you. Let's recognize that and let's do that in return. Wholehearted, whole life praise. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice, for your love, for your grace that we sang about and we prayed about earlier. And even if we were to have nothing on this earth, because of that alone, we know what you have secured for us in the next life. We know that what awaits us in heaven. Blessings that our minds could not fathom nor wrap our heads around. Not even the most creative writing or speaking could describe what we have, what we've been given, or what we will one day receive. Because we're your children. This inheritance that we're about to get is so much more than a business or, or a savings account or stock being passed down to us. Those things are garbage compared to what awaits us. And so we pray what is given to us today and tomorrow in this lifetime would point us to something so much greater. And I pray, Father, in the, as we launch this series and as we continue to talk about the next couple of weeks, make us more grateful. Open our eyes to see, wow, like there are two sides to this story. And I want to see the one that you, Lord, see. We want to see through your eyes and not our own. So, Father, I pray you produce much fruit through this series. I pray that you produce fruit of of, of, of recognition and the fruit of thanksgiving. And we certainly want to pray the fruit of generosity that comes from this church, that comes from each and every individual. And most importantly, the fruit of our discipleship, our relationship, our closeness to you being furthered, um, just deepened and grown. So we do that together. We give you thanks for your son for the purchase of our lives and our eternity. And we thank you for the material goods that you have placed before us too to steward. And we ask that you would teach us and challenge us, encourage us and push us, everything in between, for how we can do it in a way that best brings glory to you and is good for, for this earth, for this world, and for our community. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name.